Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Between the Fed's latest rate move, the U.S. midterms, U.S. CPI print, and continued focus on both earnings and inflation, the economy has definitely been jolted, leaving investors to question what is next. As we venture through this uncertain environment and look ahead to the year-end and 2023, today we're joined by a sensible expert here at Fidelity, David Tolk, Portfolio Manager on the Global Asset Allocation Team. David joins host Brian Borsakowski to reflect on the numerous factors affecting markets right now. This includes action by central banks, with David noting central banks will continue to take stimulus out of the economy and continue to leave financial conditions very tight. David also shares how the market is currently pricing in a 50 basis point rate hike from the Fed in December, and he'll look at factors determining how deep of a recession could be on the horizon. David also shares a positioning update for the Fidelity managed portfolios and other funds managed by the Global Asset Allocation Team. This includes areas of interest and current overweights and underweights. Today's podcast was recorded on November 10th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Brian Borzakowski. David, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Let's start off with the big news today. Uh, CPI came a little bit under what maybe analysts and economists were expecting. What do you make of the numbers? Yeah, we don't want to ever read too much into a single print. Uh, but yes, the data did come in a little bit softer than the market and analysts had forecast. So a bit of a deceleration in headline inflation. Part of that was you know, kind of to be expected given some of the year ago price effects falling out of the math. But, you know, core also, which is something that we've paid a lot of attention to, that was also a little bit softer than the market um, had expected. But I think we need to ultimately put some of these numbers into context. So first and foremost, inflation still is well above uh, where central banks want it to be. So to suggest that a single print or even a, a bend in the in the curve of inflation is going to allow central banks to move to the sidelines or even contemplate cutting interest rates. I think that's woefully premature. So far be it for me to rain on the market's parade today in response to the downside surprise. But I think we still have you know, a fair bit of uh, ground to cover in terms of getting inflation back under control. And until that happens, uh, central banks are going to continue to take stimulus out of the economy and continue to leave financial conditions more broadly very tight. So do you think that there could potentially be more rate hikes in the future then? Yeah, no, absolutely. So maybe what we could potentially see is uh, a slower pace of rate increases. So the market currently is, is still pricing in a 50 basis point rate hike from the Fed in December. So be between now and the end of the year. And certainly, I think other central banks around the world will be uh, moving close to lockstep with, with that move as well. So, you know, when we think about where policy, you know, needs to go in this environment, you know, we're in what I would describe as the nebulous cloud of neutral right now. So you think about 
where an interest rate needs to be to actually slow the economy. You know, we're kind of close to that, I'd say. But I think to get inflation truly back to levels that central banks want to see, they need to take those interest rates to a legitimately tight setting. So to even see real interest rates move, you know, positive at this point, you know, they're still not quite there either. So, you know, from those perspectives, I think, you know, we should still brace ourselves for, you know, additional rate hikes and a continuation of the the hawkish hawkish message from uh, central banks, such as we heard just last week from the Fed that, you know, the market seems to have glossed over today. But, you know, unfortunately, I think we'll be reminded of the next time the Fed meets or we hear from senior Fed officials. Great. But with the midterm elections, which always seem to be uh, kind of never ending in, in some ways, especially in the days after after the votes. Um, what are you seeing from that and, and any thoughts on how that might impact the market? Yeah, at least in terms of the results, obviously, we're still waiting for everything to be uh, finalized. But when it comes to political events like elections, you know, our our philosophy generally is to anticipate the policy and tend to ignore the politics itself. So insofar as, you know, if the consensus carries the day and you end up seeing a, a split Congress at this point, you know, that tends to maybe diminish some of the policy impulse that we'll get uh, from an alternative where it's uh, all of the House of Congress plus uh, the House, the Senate and the president are all leaning the same direction. So, you know, absent uh, that, we should probably just brace ourselves for a little bit more gridlock, at least politically, so that can at least diminish the likelihood of getting a lot of additional fiscal stimulus, which, you know, when we think about where the inflation story is and, and what central banks are doing, you know, certainly additional fiscal stimulus at this stage might prove to be, you know, counterproductive given what central banks themselves are, are forced into doing these days. You put out a white paper recently where you outlined, you know, your approach to investing. And, and it'd be great if maybe you can share some, some of what you, uh, what you've discussed in that white paper, especially those your, your four pillars, which I found pretty interesting. What, what are those pillars and how does it influence the way you invest? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, and certainly as a preamble to discussing the white paper itself, you know, in these periods of, of heightened volatility, we as investors need to anchor ourselves. So we have a very deliberate process. We don't want to become overwhelmed by market volatility or economic uncertainty. So we always come uh, to the pillars to help guide the decisions that we make uh, in the multi-asset class funds. So the pillars uh, are macro, bottom-up, valuation, and sentiment. And each of those gives us a different way to look at how the economy is impacting the market. And those will ultimately dictate how we take the tilts away from our benchmark allocations, but also decide what type of out-of-benchmark allocations we bring into the portfolio, either to enhance return or almost more readily provide additional uh, downside protection or risk management more broadly. Maybe we could dig into some of those pillars. So what are you finding in each one? Let's start with the macro environment. Um, what, what's on your radar there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get the bad news out of the way first. So if you look at the macro pillar, certainly in isolation, you know, it's a pretty daunting outlook today. So, you know, notwithstanding this morning's deceleration in inflation, I still would come to the conclusion that we have an inflation problem globally. We can put that in the context of a number of different factors, including central banks having left stimulus in the economy longer than what was ultimately necessary after the pandemic. We had a lot of fiscal support as well. We had ongoing supply chain issues. 
But we also generally had, you know, a misreading of the type of shock that the global economy encountered through the pandemic. And a lot of this was just central banks and policymakers not fully understanding that this was a significant shock to supply. So with supply remaining an issue even today, uh, that means that ultimately inflation is likely to still be more persistent than what the market and central bankers currently believe. So that inflation story, you know, it's easy to maybe see a little bit of a rollover inflation, but again, to the earlier comments, to get inflation back to low and stable levels, uh, I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So that means that central bank policy will need to stay tight. And as a result, the macro story is telling us where we're ultimately ending up in a recession. We can certainly talk about uh, the timing and the depth of the recession, but you know, this is a, a comment that, that we talk about frequently is that central banks, their job, number one, is to bring inflation down. And they're not evil, malicious people trying to throw people out of work and, and cause a recession just for the sake of it. But it's unfortunately the collateral damage and it's of bringing inflation back to low and stable levels. So when we look at the macro uh, lens, as we look out towards economic growth slowing, uh, the pace of hiring ultimately slowing as well, it to us as, as investors suggests that we want to be you know, somewhat defensive in our allocation. And I know we'll have a chance to talk about positioning uh, in much greater detail, but that pillar alone as a signal to us is to say, well, the business cycle is advancing, recession probabilities are rising. So let's take our portfolio and move it into a defensive level. And then the other three pillars inform how defensive we want to be at that point. So on valuations, on that pillar, uh, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so valuations for us, it's not a timing tool by any stretch of the imagination, but valuations will give us a sense of what, what range in which asset prices can move should there be a shock. And one of the things that we're certainly worried about is when markets are at extreme valuations. So when there's you know, either a tremendous amount of good news or a tremendous amount of bad news already priced into a market and it's at an extreme level because we know that once you know, a catalyst is realized, those valuations can reverse and sometimes in very dramatic fashion. So where we sit today relative to valuations is that you know, we're not as at rich levels as we would have been six months ago, nine months ago. So the extent to which we can modulate the degree of defensiveness we have so we don't need to be peak defensive in terms of also being worried about valuations in addition to the macro, we can we can take much more of what I'd say is a, a moderately defensive position. So we don't use the full range of our tactical tilts in our portfolios, but instead we try to pick something, you know, maybe closer to a third to halfway defensive because the valuation signal in isolation is not as negative as what the macro uh, would give you in its isolation. Great. And then bottom up and sentiment, what, what are your observations on those two pillars? Now, in the same vein as valuation, they don't send as ominous of an outlook as what the macro would tell us. So one of the big advantages that I have as a portfolio manager at Fidelity is access to a lot of company level research. So I think about the world primarily as a result of my training as an economist in terms of the big themes that impact the economy. I think a lot about what central banks are doing. And I can also admit to with a certain amount of humility that over the last two or three years, that hasn't been as reliable of a gauge, uh, largely because we're you know, somewhat in unprecedented times, both in terms of 
you know, wrestling with a pandemic in the modern world, but also looking and understanding at what central banks and governments have done. Also, they're well away from their standard textbooks. So all of that is to say that the macro lens, you know, it's still helpful, it still grounds our process, but it needs to be complemented by something. So the bottom up pillar where we can pull in a lot of information from what companies are seeing and what they're doing on a day by day basis gives us much more of a real time assessment of how the economy is unfolding and how markets are responding. And again, what that tells us today is that, you know, corporations have seen, you know, these type of events coming to some extent, at least in terms of higher interest rates and the probability of some of that sort of peak demand around the early reopening phase after the pandemic fading. So corporations are, are better positioned, to be quite frank. So they have taken down some of their debt levels. They used the low interest rate environment earlier on to term out a lot of their debt. Uh, they built contingencies into their business plans to anticipate at some point uh, demand would, would, would slow down. So this is not going to stop earnings from slowing, just as you would expect the wider economy to cool. But if you think of things that can go bump in the night from a corporate fundamental perspective, I think there's less today than there would have been earlier in past cycles. So that signal to us at least says that, you know, corporate fundamentals, they're okay. So again, we can modulate how much we want to be underweight uh, risk assets because we're not as worried about the corporate sector as we would have maybe going into something like the 2008, 2009 cycle that revealed a lot of corporate issues on top of what was happening in the wider economy. And then finally, just to round out on sentiment. Um, so sentiment for us, it's very much of a contrarian indicator. Uh, we tend to want to go where people aren't, at least where markets have been taken over by a lot of momentum. And one thing we've seen certainly recently is that sentiment is very much washed out. So there's a lot of pessimism in terms of what investors are, are saying, at least in terms of how they're investing when we look at fund flows. So the fact that there's so much negativity out there just means that things don't have to be good for the market to rally. Just things you know, don't need to be as, as bad as what they had thought previously. And today's a perfect example of that where CPI is still an issue. It's still elevated. It's still very persistent. But because it wasn't as bad as what you know, maybe the market had feared going into it, you see that snapback rally. So we've seen a couple of examples of this, at least in these bear market uh, rallies in, in terms of equities. So again, knowing that that is something that we need to manage, we want to be at least able to capture a bit of that upside. So insofar as us taking our portfolio to a, a moderately defensive level, as opposed to you know, abjectly or, or maximally uh, defensive is, is prudent as a result of that as well. Let's talk more about your positioning. How has all of this, what we've just talked about, informed where you are putting, putting your dollars? Our global balanced managed portfolio. This is one of the flagship funds that our team manages. So it's also fairly familiar uh, to the advisor and investor community as well. It's something that we you know, bring out on stage every time we have a chance to talk about it. So I'll give you the, the 10,000 foot perspective, at least in terms of stocks versus bonds. If you take out the commodity producers allocation, which itself is a uh, gold and energy ETF, so a little bit distinct from traditional equities, you know, we are moderately underweight equities. That picks up on that theme of being moderately defensive. Where we are overweight instead is really more in the short-term uh, cash type allocation. So there are a couple of things going on here, but broadly speaking, given that we anticipate equities to be under pressure as the economy slows, 
And as bonds will continue to struggle as interest rates move higher, you know, we think that uh, an okay place to hide out for now is in those short-term securities. So that's just one very high-level way of positioning ourselves to be moderately defensive. We can also be defensive in terms of our allocation to currency. So I know we can dig into this in much more detail as well, but the underweight we have to the Canadian dollar, on the other side of that, a lot of that is relative to the US dollar. And we're not only overweight the US dollar versus Canada, but we're also overweight the US dollar relative to emerging market and G10 currencies as well. And that's just another way to pick up on the theme of saying where, you know, when the economy or when the market is vulnerable, investors do seek the safety of the US dollar. So we want to have that view expressed in the portfolio as well. Great. There, there, there was actually a question about, the, about explaining the underweight of Canadian, uh, Canadian currency. Is there a circumstance uh, where you might reduce that underweight? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And we're always watching these allocations and we're carrying an investment thesis behind that. So, you know, the motivation for the underweight, certainly to the Canadian dollar, you know, part of it is around um, the macro narrative. So a little bit earlier on in the cycle, we had actually trimmed the underweight to the Canadian dollar because we wanted to pick up on the commodity tailwind that was very much a factor uh, over the last year or two. But as we assess that position today, now, that commodity tailwind you know, can still exist and we still have out of benchmark allocations to commodities. But when we're more worried about, at least in the context of Canada, is the impact of higher interest rates slowing the economy. So Canada, in contrast to the US or other regions around the world, is much more vulnerable to higher interest rates. So if that's the shock that we're managing, our job, at least from a regional equity perspective, as well as from a currency perspective, is to shy away from regions where that vulnerability is particularly pronounced. So Canada certainly is at the top of the list. So the macro story of saying, well, if Canada is going to underperform other regions from a growth perspective, you know, that's a motivator for being underweight the Canadian dollar. Similarly, you know, I don't think the Bank of Canada can match the Federal Reserve in lockstep in terms of taking interest rates higher, especially as you get to that neutral level and beyond. So if you think about it from a, a currency differential perspective, that would also tend to favor the US dollar relative to the Canadian dollar. So that's another motivation to be underweight the Canadian dollar. And then third and finally, as I touched on this earlier, when the market's under a lot of pressure and both stocks are weakening and maybe bonds are weakening, that's traditionally a market where you'll see the Canadian dollar weaken as well. So to provide that level of risk management um, into the portfolio uh, through the currency lens is something that we would also use and reflect in terms of the lower or an underweight to the Canadian dollar. But if anything were to change, certainly on that front, I know the question is about reducing the underweight. So if we were to be much more advanced in that macro narrative when it comes to Canada, that might cause us to reconsider. Certainly the commodity story is also something we're watching very carefully. But if you think about the type of, the type of, of themes that I outlined that motivate the underweight, I think it would, we'd be hard pressed to become, you know, outwardly optimistic and overweight the Canadian dollar, just given the, the challenges that we think Canada will face for quite some time. You have an overweight a bit to emerging markets, which I thought was interesting. Why are there opportunities there? 
Yeah, so basically this comes back to uh, the four pillars. So when we think a little bit about the macro pillar, again, I talked about it globally in terms of the challenges that we face. But, you know, when we look at individual regions, you know, there has been a little bit of a difference opening up between emerging markets and more developed markets. So when we think about policy tightening, that's something certainly developed markets, central banks are, are continuing to do. But there's a little bit of policy easing on the margin taking place within emerging markets. So if you want to think about it through the business cycle lens, you can make a case to say that the emerging market economies are a little bit more advanced through the business cycle. So there might be some scope for relative outperformance there. Obviously, we need to temper that because there's only so far that emerging markets can disconnect from what's happening in developed market economies. But if we want to play a little bit of offensive from or offense from the uh, cycle perspective that can take place in emerging markets. Similarly, uh, from a valuation perspective, emerging markets are, are continue to be much cheaper than developed markets. So there's a, a valuation argument for an allocation there as well. And then from a sentiment perspective, you know, everybody and their brother are really against emerging markets now, uh, even relative to other asset classes or, or geographies. So. The sense that, again, sentiment as a contrarian indicator does give us that motivation to say, well, this does maybe deserve a, a small position. So it is a way for us, you know, again, to play up the regional equity story and have a little bit of offense in addition to a lot of the defense that I've described thus far. Finally, on positioning, just the I, I see that you also have an allocation to spread sectors. What's your thinking behind that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when we think about the bond side of the portfolio, you know, generally, you, know, you can see that we are underweight investment grades. So we're modestly underweight duration. That's a reflection, certainly, of where we see interest rates moving more generally. But at the same time, you know, we want to be able to find uh, more ways to diversify the fixed income landscape, uh, especially within these portfolios, and especially because bonds have had such a terrible year thus far. So to have selective allocations into credit are, are something that we're doing to achieve that goal. And I should be very clear that all of these allocations are being done with active managers. So this, again, leverages Fidelity's research, research platform to bring in really strong idiosyncratic uh, securities into the portfolio. So having allocations into high yield that are carefully managed, uh, I think can still provide some some upside. And, and Jeff Moore has, has talked about this in the past as well, that he would identify, you know, the spread cushion as being sufficient to maybe offset any type of capital loss that the securities could potentially face. So that's a motivation for that allocation. We still have a floating rate note allocation. So that picks up on the move higher in interest rates. And then on top of that as well, the allocations into emerging market debt give us a really good yield pickup, again, actively managed, and allows some offense to be uh, expressed across the portfolio as well. Question that just came in uh, is around how much energy prices are contributing to inflation. Could it spike this winter and maybe come down in the spring? Yeah, no, certainly. Uh, when we think about uh, inflation and the influence of energy prices, it's always going to be on a year ago uh, measure. So when we think about year ago uh, prices, we have seen commodity prices come down to some extent, uh, but certainly anything on the geopolitical front could send commodity prices higher. And I know it's virtually impossible to try to, to forecast anything on the geopolitical front. So, you know, we're thinking it thinking of it more in terms of the impact on on the wider economy. And because that inflation story, you know, certainly is something that we think will prove to be uh, persistent. I think you still want to have allocations to 
um, commodities and especially just an appreciation of the geopolitical risks. So, you know, we could certainly see, I don't want to, I mean, forecasting the economy is hard enough. I don't want to try forecasting the weather, but um, certainly when you think about uh, the dynamic around energy prices, uh, that could be very much driven both by geopolitics and, and weather generally. So, you know, it's certainly possible as a trajectory, but you know, from our perspective, having those allocations uh, play into the wider themes as much as anything else. Earlier, you, t- you, t- you know, you you anticipating a recession, you're talking about a recession. I'm just wondering, how deep do you think this could be? And, and are there any signs that you're watching out for advisors could look for to say, hey, maybe things are getting a bit better? Yeah. So as the standard economist answer, the, the answer to the how deep of a recession is that it depends. So it certainly depends on inflation and what will transpire from here. It depends on the conviction that central banks have in terms of keeping interest rates elevated. And we, again, think inflation will be more persistent and we think the central banks will stay tighter than the market expects. So that doesn't particularly bode well for the outlook for growth. But where I think it really depends is on individual regions. And this comes back to a theme that we talked about earlier in terms of how interest rate sensitive different geographies or different countries are. So that really informs the regional equity allocations we have. So you know, we talked about Canada as being very interest rate sensitive, and as a result, that's the high conviction underweight we have. But if you think about the U.S. economy, uh, the U.S. economy is much less interest rate sensitive. So uh, all things equal for higher interest rates, we could see a more mild recession in the U.S., and that's the motivator for you know, a larger allocation on a, on a geographic basis into the U.S. versus some of these other regions. Similarly, uh, across Europe and the Far East, again, this is an area that you know, will see higher interest rates and still has issues with sovereign and private sector debt. So that's the motivator for being underweight in the international bucket. And then finally, you know, emerging markets, again, they're already in a recession. And if anything, if you get policy stimulus and any type of improvement on, on the inflation front or on the growth front, you know, that's one region that can stand to benefit. And that hinges into you know, our comments on uh, emerging markets earlier. Great. Are there any circumstances, just moving on to back to bonds for a minute, are there any circumstances where you would bring investment grade bonds uh, to the benchmark in the global, in the global balance portfolio? Yeah, I think in terms of bringing it fully back, we all generally want to have red sector exposure. So that's true of any market. Again, having uh, actively managed portfolio allocations there is something that is really important with that allocation. So we'll, we, I don't think we'd ever want to get rid of credit entirely as those plus sectors. So that'll limit the extent to which we will bring investment grade back to benchmark. But you know, within the bond story, and this is a, a really interesting story that at some point, you know, you're going to want to start nibbling away at investment grade as central banks get closer to uh, completing their, right, their rate hiking cycle. And I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but you know, nibbling away at some of the long duration treasury exposures, you know, that, that at some point I think will, will be a, an allocation that, that will try to increase. But uh, again, I don't think we're quite there yet. And so we want to be somewhat prudent in, in how that, that part of the portfolio is handled. Um, maybe we just got a couple minutes left and, and maybe kind of a final thought here. And, you know, as I, th- I think investors, uh, probably advisors too, uh, it, it, 
it's very confusing uh, in a lot of ways as to what's going on now. You see um, job increases happening. You know, we Canada added 108,000 jobs not long ago, just this a couple weeks ago, they announced that. And uh, then we see CPI coming down a bit, but you're talking about a recession. How do you make sense of it all? What's your advice for for, for investors on, on how to deal with kind of all of the news and, and, and what to do with their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, the, the advice that uh, I give myself more than anyone else is really sticking to the four pillars of our process. So, you know, that roots us in, in economic fundamentals. It roots us in all of the information that we have from available to us from across the firm. It roots us in how things are priced and how investors are feeling. But I think the advice that I can give to the world more generally is, is to really, you know, stay diversified. So that's a core philosophy for us is to definitely having the degree of diversification both across geographies, across different asset classes, because you know the world will remain uncertain. That's you know definitely a, a truth there. So you know to have different exposures that you can use to provide offense and others to provide defense, and then using a, a well-articulated process to allocate across the two and staying invested in the market, I think ultimately is is the key to success that that we bring to our portfolios every day. Great, David, I will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts on everything that's going on. You're very welcome, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.